In school, North Korean children are taught that they were clothed, fed, and nurtured by Il-sung's godlike grace, and that he liberated the country from Japanese aggressors by single-handedly shooting down warplanes. But to the true believers, the coronation of Haile Selassie meant the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. His expulsion by fascist Italy and subsequent return only furthered their beliefs. He was the prodigal king, and he would be the unifier of all Africa. The great Turkmen Bashi has built a one-party state based on a bizarre cult of personality. In public, ordinary Turkmens will proclaim their devotion to their leader, but their affection is contrived, motivated by a climate of fear and One intimidation. One man in south-central India, whose home is now a Trump shrine. There he prays for the US president, ecstatic for his arrival. It's a new year, a new podcast, and fresh new conflicts in this age of democratic decline. There's the Capitol Hill breach, the imminent destruction of American democracy, coronavirus, war in Mali, Yemeni famine, Indian farmer protests, Ethiopian civil war, national coin shortage. Get on with it. When I last left you, we had seized control of the state with full authoritative power. It seems that the country listened to my first episode. And though it's been a while, we've got a full season to get you on the inside of the burgeoning autocratic states of America. But now, in our relatively fictitious authoritania, it's good to be on top. No one to question you. No rules, but your own. You can do anything! But remember, you're on the top. There's nowhere else to go but down. And the mob that rallied around you and thrusted you into power may rally around someone else if you're not too careful. So how do you stop your body from being dragged from your palace and hung in the square, like Gaddafi, Mussolini, and many autocrats before them? You could try to be a benevolent dictator and lead your people to economic boom while crushing political dissent and freedom of speech. You could just purge and disappear anyone you so please to instill totalitarian terror. You could even immerse yourself in a mesh of bureaucratic red tape, political pandering, and mountains of legal paperwork that would take years to unravel. To avoid doing this, and also by the consequence of history, the royal family and current dynasty of Thailand fashion themselves as direct descendants from the Hindu god Rama. Each ruler bears the regal name Ram in a tradition stretching back centuries, and if you have luck to be born into this royal family, you're set for life. I'll be a living god! I had the opportunity to visit Thailand during the reign of King Rama IX, and the people of Thailand respected him as both a strong leader alongside a benevolent, semi-holy figure. Despite having little to no political power, but the ability to jail dissidents, critics, and journalists for decades at a time, he was revered and respected by his people. Large portraits of him were displayed in the street, and each day a montage of his photos above a rendition of the Thai national anthem would play on television. Even through decades of coups and military dictatorships, King Rama IX commanded respect and sovereign power for 70 years. By the time he died, he was the richest and longest reigning monarch on earth. So yeah, a monarchy by virtue of its setup promises security and stability to its people through its divine, absolute, and sovereign rule. Here's the problem. Your authoritania doesn't have the luxury of divinely inspired rule, nor the centuries of legitimacy that comes with religious autocracy. After a revolution or hotly contested election, you probably only have your lifetime to cement yourself as an important figure on which the destiny of a nation hinges, and that can end pretty quickly. I promised in my first episode that I would show you how to become a truly eternal leader. I showed you how to become a president with massive power, but this show is about building the dictatorship of your dreams and nightmares. You have to become something more. Something all-powerful. I am a golden god! Uh, no. Uh, 
you need to be something that people actually believe in. Something that commands not just respect, but absolute unquestionable power. And you can't just stand in the street and declare yourself the divine ruler, otherwise you're just a raving egotistical maniac. I am the king of the mountaintop! No. You've got to do something completely logical. You've got to start a cult. Welcome to the new age of government. Welcome to Authoritania. I went to the same university as Jim Jones, the guy who created the People's Temple in Indianapolis, and perpetrated one of the largest mass killings in American history in Jonestown, Guyana. I'm not going to be talking about pseudo-religious cults, at least not for this episode. I'm actually talking about cults of personality. People love me. The term cult of personality has a bit of a cloudy history. Though it has some roots in the Roman leadership cults of old, it's safe to say that it entered into the modern public sphere and political world with the rise of a man synonymous with totalitarianism, Joseph Vissarionovich Stalin. So what, I hear you saying. Of course Stalin was totalitarian. We've all seen the posters of his face in the streets and the singing and the chanting of the Soviet people. Next you're going to teach us that Hitler was bad too. We know these guys were worshipped as leaders, but how do I create a cult? Alright, fine. I'll get to the point. To do that, I want to tell you a story about my experience with a cult of personality in the same nation where Stalin once lived. After its independence from the Soviet Union, the old cults on its borders may have died, but new cults, new leaders, and new stories took root. Their leaders grew up in Stalinist Russia and took its lessons to heart. Their children learned from them and now carry out their missions the same. I touched down in the Republic of Azerbaijan on June 20th, 2019. I landed with a few friends in Haydar Aliyev International Airport in the capital city of Baku after about 20 hours of traveling. In that time, I had read quite a bit on the history of Azerbaijan. I knew that the Aliyev family was a powerful and incredibly popular force. Haydar was apparently a semi-divine figure. And despite being the third leader of the republic, he is, legally speaking, the eternal leader of the nation. A massive, alien-looking structure known as the Haydar Aliyev Center sits in the city as a museum, testament, and somewhat of a temple to his legacy. On its website, I read about his long career as an Azeri Soviet politician, KGB general, and major political player in Moscow. I read that in May to June of 1993, Given the acute government crisis fraught with civil war and compromising Azerbaijan's very existence as an independent state, the mass movement demanding Haydar Aliyev's return became the dominant force in Azerbaijan. Faced with this ever-increasing popular movement, the authorities of the day had no other choice than calling Haydar Aliyev back to Baku. The rest of the website spoke of his leadership, benevolence, and success. They didn't say what the crisis was or just how he maneuvered himself into becoming a god amongst men. Just that it happened. Over the next two months, I attended classes in Baku. Each day, I would wake up and walk to board a bus to school, and the ads on board showed soldiers in war paint, besides block text that read, Karabakh Adutma, don't forget Karabakh. Sometimes I'd see similar signs and walks in the city. I'd walk into the lobby of the university, greeted by a guard to check my student ID, and a bust of Haydar Aliyev, besides flags and a quote hung in gold, I guess, to check my nationalism. My classroom featured a photo of Ilham Aliyev, the president, a book about his mother, and another photo of Ilham and his wife Meriban. 
After class, I would go and meet my friend, uh, we'll call him Rashid, at the Baku Book Center, a beautiful library built by the Haydar Aliyev Center. And I would pass by a massive park in Marble Plaza, presided over in silence by a statue of Haydar, arm outstretched. No matter where I went, I couldn't escape him. Aliyev created his cult of personality through three methods, and they're similar methods with other autocrats around the world. Number one, security theater, gaining support through a focus on major security and military concern. Number two, getting money, courting the wealthy, elite, and well-connected of his nation and the globe to achieve local stability. Number three, silencing doubt and maintaining face, eliminating alternative interpretations of his rise to power and making him the eternal sovereign ruler. Let's talk about security theater, in my mind, the most important part. Hidar Aliyev and his family made the venue for their takeover a small region in the Caucasus called Nagorno-Karabakh. It's been in the news a lot lately. The region and breakaway state of Nagorno-Karabakh declared independence from Azerbaijan with the assistance of Armenia in 1992. A majority of its citizens are Armenian by ethnicity, but the region has been considered a legal part of Azerbaijan since its integration into the Soviet Union. There have been a series of wars, conflicts, and clashes meant to forcibly return this region to Azerbaijan. The first and allegedly last democratically elected president at the time, Abulfas Elchibey, called Hidar Aliyev to Baku after the Declaration of Independence to discuss the civil unrest in both Karabakh and major cities across the nation. When he arrived, Aliyev quickly consolidated power among Soviet friends and ousted Elchibey accusing him of destroying the nation of Azerbaijan and plunging the nation into chaos. He was deemed unfit to rule, and Aliyev and his friends sentenced him to life in prison. The purges of Armenians from Azeri society and Azeris from Armenian society only grew as Haydar stoked the nationalist fires. Ethnic cleansings of both Azeri and Armenians occupied throughout the South Caucasus. Aliyev stood before the Azeri people on the cusp of his election and said that unless the people of Azerbaijan supported him, their killings, chaos, and war would continue, destroying the nation forever. If they supported him, however, not only would he bring peace to the country, he would reclaim Karabakh and bring those who were exiled by the Armenians back to their homes. In the end, Aliyev was elected leader by a vast majority of citizens. It didn't matter if the election was considered fraudulent by international observers. He was in control. Under him, the eternal war with Armenia began. Under Aliyev, the war would end with crushing defeat for the enemy across the border. Whoever you are as an Azeri citizen, whatever your political opinions are in Azeri politics, you cannot, and I repeat, cannot doubt that Karabakh is Azerbaijan. The Aliyev saw Karabakh as a symbol of justice for the ethnic cleansings of Azeris by Armenians and Soviets for many. This sentiment unites the people of Azerbaijan. When Elchibe failed to regain control of it, Haydar used the moment to strike, and with it, created his new monarchy. He used messaging around it to secure undying support from his people, convincing them that if they cared about Karabakh, they would only support him and his family. Only they could return the nation to its former state, its former glory. We will have so much winning if I get elected that you may get bored with winning. And it seemed like it worked. Late last year, a treaty was signed between Armenia and Azerbaijan after months of renewed warfare that granted Azerbaijan a massive victory. It seems for now, the success, power, and domination of the Aliyevs is confirmed. Winning is sweet. This type of logic doesn't necessarily require a war. You can use any method of insurrection to create the atmosphere where you are the best choice to lead, 
since you are the head of a strong central government during a time of massive fracturing. Why does Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria, still retain power despite decades of human rights abuses and fighting Western-supported alternative governments? He's the leader. If he fails, the country fails. And it could fall to a band of radicals intent on bringing back public decapitation. Why is Donald Trump still so loved and supported despite his actions in creating chaos? He's the leader. He supported you before, and if you let him lose, the liberals will bring back Stalinist communism. You and your family will be in danger and will never be supported again. The country will be handed to terrorist sympathizers, anarchists, and antichrists. Thus you, the citizen, must support him by doing anything you can to keep him in power, by any means necessary. Alright, you've sold yourself as the savior of your insecure nation, and the people have trusted you with gaining victory in your eternal war. But you'll need a lot of connections and cash for a successful second step. You'll have to make sure that no one wants to overthrow you like Aliyev did to Elchibe. You've got to become indispensable to the institutions and people around you. That's exactly what Aliyev did. By providence of birth, Aliyev was vying for ultimate control of a petroleum-soaked state. Azerbaijan was the site of the first commercially drilled oil well in history. At the dawn of the 20th century, the entire nation accounted for half the world's oil output, and it hasn't stopped pumping. The first thing Haydar did when he came to power? He called a PP. He sold Azerbaijan's massive oil and gas reserves to Western nations, the only state in the region willing to do so, enriching the state. He paid off anyone with significant doubt about his rule. He built and maintained ties with the Republic of Turkey. The two nations are culturally linked, and they practically share a language. But now they get loads of armaments from Mother Turkey in exchange for barrels and barrels of oil. Turkey was more than happy to take this trade if it meant antagonizing Armenia for boatloads of cash. <laughs> there was a lot of money to be made, and a lot of allies who wanted a cut. If his supporters in Azerbaijan wanted the checks to keep coming, and their many names in the Panama and Paradise Papers tell us that they did, they would have to support Haydar. And they did. How did this work when power was transferred to his son? Well, the checks, expanded by one Aliyev, were signed by another, Ilham, who was the head of the state oil corporation during his father's rule. Ilham controlled it all, every dollar, right down to the price of the pump. He used some of the wealth after that to build the region's largest military to take back Karabakh. He used some of it to turn Baku, the capital, into what Ilham calls the Dubai of the Caspian, a veritable playground for oligarchs, autocrats, and the wealthy. Donald Trump has a tower there. Hundreds of oil executives from Russia and the Arabian Peninsula vacation there. He maintained power by courting these influential, wealthy, and powerful men and wealthier, more powerful nations, and they return the favor with their patronage and defense contracts. And the people of Azerbaijan? Well, they're unhappy with seeing so many Arab businessmen in the street of Baku, but they're happy to enjoy the new prosperity of the country. Aliyev promised to make them rich. For a people subject to warfare and violence for generations, the showering of wealth anywhere in the country is enough to get some plus points for the ruling regime, even if the people aren't the ones experiencing it. This is an incredibly important aspect. Even if you're destroying the last semblances of democracy in your country, people will be hesitant to bite the hand that feeds them. They can rant against you, disagree with you, even insult you sometimes, but they won't work against you. They'd be burning their own paychecks. At the worst, they'll resign from their positions, distance themselves from you, and write a few books when the dust settles. Usually, they'll recognize that getting in good with you means big bucks for them. So they'll feed information to their underlings, constituents, and or clients. 
Pretty soon you've got support from people who should really be hating what you're doing. Giving breaks to the wealthy, cutting your health care, or emboldening a group of legalized thugs to beat and abuse you and your community. But they're doing that to save this country. They're doing this in the name of a free nation. A beautiful, a blessed nation. And don't worry. If you help him, like the more wealthy you're helping him, he'll pay you too. Now I'm going to make our country rich again. The third and final step, silencing doubt and maintaining face, is incredibly literal. By placing your face everywhere, you remind people that you are everywhere. Your eyes and ears are everywhere. Hadar learned from his time as a KGB general that you've got to have people on the ground listening for revolution and sedition. As I walk through the streets of Baku, I play a game of identifying plainclothes secret police. I'd see cameras in the streets, unsure of what business or building they were watching, but they were watching. By doing this, alongside placing your image and name everywhere, you force people to pay homage to you. Know that you are always watching, and be fearful of your wrath. After all, you have attained power. Press freedoms in the country plummeted. Now its freedom of speech ranks lower than the Islamic Republic of Iran. There's no independent press in the country. Most people would rather get their news from social media rather than government publications. And those social media apps can easily be bought and sold, manipulated, and shut down if you've courted the right people. Journalists and dissidents who spoke out against Aliyev were labeled as threats, terrorists, or outright traitors to the nation. New journalists were given better salaries and comfy jobs, just as long as they kept their mouths relatively shut. I asked Rashid once about whether or not the rise of Aliyev was really that popular. Was it really as they say? He couldn't answer the question, and I don't blame him. People who ask these kinds of questions get interrogated, jailed, or disappear. He told me about a time when he went to the library at his university to find a book on the history of the Caucasus for a research paper. As he read it, he found that the history he was taught in school, the history he had doubted but never questioned, wasn't the one recounted in his book. He took his notes and placed the book back on the shelf as the library began to close for the day. A few days later, he returned to check out the book. He asked the librarian to look up the book to see if it had been checked out and when it would return. No record of the book was found in the system. He told her he knew the book was there. He checked it out just the other day. She apologized and said that he must be mistaken. There was never a book by that title at the library. To remind the citizens of who's in charge, who pays their salaries, defends their homes from Armenian invaders and lifts their country up, billboards of the Aliyev's faces line streets and highways in the country. It was a long-running joke between me and my American friends that the numerous pictures of Hadar had cameras in his eyes and microphones in his ears. Pictures of the leader are in every building, sometimes in every room. The largest mosque in Azerbaijan, one of the most secular nations on earth, bears his name. The statues of him across the nation paint him as more than a president. He is a holy figure and his cult began from that control of nationalism. When you come to embody everything that the state was, is, and will be, after a career as a vision of Soviet Azerbaijani political success, he found a broken nation, his broken nation, cut out the disease of democracy that had allowed it to divide on itself, and raised it to glory, his glory. Speaking against this comes with a jail sentence at the very least, and being socially ostracized most definitely. I don't want to talk to you no more! What selects these leaders to attain ultimate power? Is it chance? Is it luck? Is it divine intervention? No, it's themselves. They saw the opportunity and they took it, by influence and by force, because they're all powerful. They might look dumb, they might say some stupid things, they might even be on the cusp of insanity, but they're anything but idiots. 
if there is anything out there, any source that doubts their supremacy, their rule of law, they disappear. You didn't see anything. As far as the citizens of Azerbaijan and most of the rest of the world is concerned, the histories recounted by surface media and government publication is the story. Who else would know the history better than the government, right? But that's the secret to making your cult of personality work. History is written by the victors. If you can mold a narrative of your rise to power into a mythos of the triumphs, glory, and legacy of your nation, who would dare challenge you? If you can tie your chair, your throne to that of the uniting history, stability, and ideology of the nation, who would actively oppose you? To topple you would be to topple the Colossus of Rhodes. It would mean the death of your country. Bye-bye! Kings have the benefit of centuries of divine rule behind them. It's the will of God that they be in power. Dictators have the benefit of legions of guns, enforcers, and supporters behind them. It's the will of the state that they be in power. If you find what unites your people and show them that you and you alone will give them what they want, it will be through the will of the people that you remain in power. Your cult is complete. It's time to mold education to fit your will. It's time to cater your economies to nations who will sign your checks. It's time to make sure that the state is tied to you and you alone. Those who do not respect, support, and worship you are the barbarian heathens at the door. They are now sinners in the eyes of the law, and they must be shown the error of their ways, or a jail cell to rot in. That is until the people who oppose you realize they've been duped, give some more money to powerful countries for a better deal, get a bunch of money in armed support, launch a coup, and restore balance to the democracy and human rights you destroyed along the way. But that can't lead to an eternal dictatorship again, right? Thanks for listening to this episode of Authoritania. Remember, autocracy lurks behind every corner. Authoritania is written and hosted by me, Nikhil Jane, produced and edited by Kennedy Mangus, with music by Sloan Welsh. You can find Sloan at Sloney Baloney on Instagram. It's Baloney with two Y's. If you want to hear more from us, support our work, or buy us a cup of coffee, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com authoritania. You can find us on Twitter at authoritania. Send us your questions. We'll address them in a podcast episode. And be sure to share us with your friends and government informers. I'm Nikhil Jain, and I've been your autocrat for the day. I'll see you in the revolution.